We are jumping into our Advent series, and so as I do every week, I want to just say thank you. Thank you for bringing the church into this space. Thank you for bringing the church into your living room. For those of you that are gathered with us for Crosspoint at home, if you're new to Crosspoint, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and it's my joy to open up God's word as we are in this, not only this Advent season, but we're doing this Advent sermon series over these weeks leading up to Christmas Eve But with that, hear these words. We want to keep putting this before you. Historically, Advent, yes, there's a looking back, and Advent means this coming or arrival, and it's celebrating the first arrival of Christ. But it is far more than that. It's not just the countdown to Christmas. It's this looking ahead when Jesus will come back, and he's going to wipe away every tear, and he's going to do away with all death and destruction and all the hurt and pain, and we will enjoy the presence of God as we were originally intended for forever. And so we long for that. And so what we're doing each week is we're looking at, as you see in this title, this echoes of a voice, or maybe another way to think about it, our signpost, things that, that point to the deeper reality. And so we've looked at the longing for justice. We've looked at the hunger for relationships. And this morning, we're going to look at this search or this quest for spirituality. What does it look like to be a truly spiritual person the way the Bible defines it, not just the way the culture would define it? Because there's lots of interest in spirituality for sure. But what does it look like to actually follow how Jesus would talk about this, how the scriptures would speak of it? And there's these hungers. And so are we paying attention? And the invitation in this Advent season is, yes, we celebrate. We've got that anticipation for Christmas and all of it. But also that we would pay attention. We would ask the Holy Spirit to do his work that we would see in the longings, the heartache, the pain, the desires, that it would not just point us to just things that are temporal, but it would point to things that are lasting. It would point to Jesus. And so I want to invite you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. If you brought a Bible, please turn there so you can follow along. We want you to hear from God's word. You don't need my thoughts or my opinions. We need to hear from God, and he communicates to us through his word. You can also get your phone out and go to CP life.church, and you will see something that says sermon notes as you scroll down a little bit. Click that. It'll take you to a page where the text is for this morning. Anything that gets put up on the slides, that information will be there as well. But I want to go ahead and read this as we get into this quest for spirituality. So Acts 17, 22 to 34. Let me read this, and then we'll make our way through this great text. This is the Apostle Paul. It's about his journeys. He has landed in the city of Athens this key famous city that has some of the most like intellectual elite of the day are gathered there. It tells us earlier in this chapter that they love to sit around and to philosophize all day and to engage in the latest ideas. And Paul has a bit of a layover there. And because he's the apostle Paul and he doesn't want to just sit back and be like, whew, I'm going to have some downtime, a little, little Paul time, a little introvert time. I'm just going to do that, right? He's like, No, I'm going to get out in the city, and I'm going to see, and I'm going to look, and his heart begins to break for the people of Athens, and he is invited then to come and to share more about Jesus. All right, nothing wrong with introvert time and you time. I I need that as well, but anyway, here we go. All right, so, but Paul gets going here into the city of Athens, beginning in verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect, for as I was passing through... In observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I will proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
He is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Verse 27, he did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that this divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And he has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. And so as we get into this, we talk about this search or this quest for spirituality. I want to put before you a question for all of us to consider. Are you on an adventure or are you on a Quest. And there's a massive distinction between these two. This comes from the writings of one J.R.R. Tolkien, um, and he wrote The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. And if you were to sit down and have a conversation with him, which would be hard because he's passed away, but if you were able to go and do that, he would talk about The Hobbit as an adventure story. It's literally referred to as out and, you know, kind of goes out and then back again. And in many ways, when I think about our culture and the time in which we inhabit, the place that we live, there's a lot of interest in spirituality. And there's lots of different takes on that. There's lots of different pursuits. But in many ways, it can stay in the realm of just an adventure. I'll engage in this in a little bit. Even what we're doing here, maybe some of you have embraced more of an adventure mindset. The adventure is getting to church on Sunday, which I know it can be an adventure sometimes, all right? But then it just stops there. But the Lord Jesus is inviting us into far more. Tolkien would talk about the Lord of the Rings then as a quest. And the difference between an adventure where you just go out and you have a good time and then you come back. A quest is you don't know if you'll actually come back or not. And if you should happen to be able to come back and you make it back home, home may not actually ever be the same because of what has transpired. The things that you have gone through, the things that you have seen, the experiences that you have, it marks you and it shapes you. And so even as you enter back into what was familiar, now there's this dissonance. Now there's this feeling of like, I don't know if this is quite where I belong. Like you have been changed. And the calling for us as we seek to be all that God would have for us as spiritual beings as well is not an adventure where we simply compartmentalize that, but that we would be willing to follow Jesus on this quest. You think of the Old Testament scriptures and God calling Abram, right, who becomes Abraham, and God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I know you're super old right now, and you don't have any kids, and all, all of this, all right, and he's like, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to lead you, and, you know, Abram's like, where are we going? And God's like, I'll, I'll tell you when we get there, right? I mean, that's quest language. That is, will you trust me? And the invitation, the longing of our heart for spirituality, we were all created, every person 
that's ever walked the face of the earth or will walk the face of the earth is a worshiper. There's this spiritual nature to everybody. So the question is not, do you worship? The question is, what do you worship? And so Paul here, as he is in Athens, is going to get into those things to help redirect, to say, oh, that impulse to worship, that's good and right and true and just in general, but it is misguided the ways that you're taking it. And so at the end, we read this, right? They heard about the resurrection. All right, you have a few that ridicule, and then you have some that believe. And so what I want to ask this morning is, like, how do we move from people that are skeptical, that are engaged in idolatry, to actually true spirituality, the way the Bible would talk about it? And so with that, there's four things I want to look at this morning in this text, four recognitions, I believe, that need to take place if we're going to move from idolatry to actual true spirituality, if we're going to engage in this quest that the Lord Jesus invites us into, that we might trust him with our lives, that we would surrender. As a disciple, it means we are learners. Jesus is the teacher. Jesus is our Lord. Jesus is the master, and we follow him. And so Paul engages with a group of people that in many ways are hyper-spiritual but also very misguided. And I believe if we're honest, we will see that is the world we inhabit, but it's also not, it's not just out there, like it's in my heart and it's in your heart, this misguided worship, this misdirected worship at times. So if we're going to see this movement, here's the first thing I put before. I think we need to recognize the spiritual impulse but also its limitations. So notice what happens. Paul shows up in Athens, all right? Um, here is this picture here. Um, and Paul, as he walks the streets and as he's invited to this place called Mars Hill or this Areopagus, right, he's been looking around. He's been spending time and he says, people of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Now, I love what Paul does here as he starts out. I think this is even helpful just as we think about bearing witness, being a faithful witness in our community. Paul finds something to connect with in the stories. Think about this for a moment. Paul was raised in the strictest of Jewish environments, which would have meant a number of things, one of which was that he was a monotheist, meaning that he knew to have gods or all you know, these multiple gods and idols was just an abomination. It's like, no, you don't do that. There's one God. And so I'm sure that there was something within him the self-righteousness that would still exist in Paul's heart, would want to walk the streets of Athens and be like, shame on these people, I can't believe this. Or he might have it in his mind, like, this is the kind of place my mom and dad said never to go to, right? Like, those might have been some of the thoughts. And yet he's able to look out, and he's able to encourage the people because he wants to see them move. He wants to see this spiritual quest begin to take place, this quest for spirituality. And so he identifies something. In them. He's like, this religious impulse, this spiritual impulse to worship, it's manifests itself in improper ways, in ways that don't honor God. But I want you to know, I see this devotion, and there's something good and right in that, but I'm here to proclaim to you. He's like, the time of ignorance is over. Let me share with you what is right and good and beautiful and what is true. If we were to read a little bit earlier, starting back in verse 16, it tells us about Paul's arrival. I'll read verse 16 here. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, so he's got these friends that he's waiting on, he's waiting for them in Athens, the language here, he's not just a tourist passing through, and he's like, oh, that's interesting. It says this, he was deeply distressed. This is weighing on him. He is looking out over the city of Athens. 
It's not his home. It's not where he grew up. He doesn't know this place very well. But his heart breaks, reminiscent of Jesus, our Savior, when he looks out over Jerusalem and he weeps for the city. And I think a question for us that we need to be constantly asking, do you and I weep over Orlando, over Altamont Springs, over Maitland, Castleberry, Winter Park, Oviedo, Winter Springs, Lake Mary, Sanford, wherever it is that you live, do we weep? Do you weep over your workplace? Do you weep over your school? Like there's this brokenness. We begin to see, like our eyes begin to be opened because we're dialed into the idolatry that's still in our own heart. We're seeing it out in the culture. And it's not from a place of self-righteousness or judgment, but rather a, a heavy-heartedness. Paul, it says, is deeply distressed. And it says, when he saw that the city was full of idols. And the language there, full, this word, it means to be like completely immersed, to be flooded, to be covered up. I mean, think about this as you see in this picture, right? The idea there of full of idols is the entire city has been overwhelmed or overcome like a flood covering the tops of cars and over the roofs of houses. The thing is submerged in idolatry. And the temptation can be for us as modern, sort of sophisticated people is to think, that's ancient and barbaric and archaic, and thankfully we've moved on. And sure, yes, we probably didn't carve something out of gold or silver or wood and put it in the backyard and gather the children around in the neighborhood and say, hey, let's come and bow down to this. That's probably not how your week went, all right? But hear these words from John Stott, late theologian and pastor. He says this, idols are not limited to primitive societies. There are many sophisticated idols too. An idol is a God substitute. Any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy is an idol. Covetousness is idolatry. Ideologies can be idolatries. So can fame, wealth, power, sex, food, alcohol and other drugs, parents, spouse, children and friends, work, recreation, television and possessions and even church, religion, and Christian service. Now, he is not anti any of those things that he's listed out. In the right context, they are good gifts from the Lord. But the propensity of the human heart is to take those things and make them a God substitute. Say, my life doesn't have any meaning or purpose if I don't have this career, if I don't have this relationship, if my children aren't turning out this way, if, I don't, if I'm not able to have children, I need to have them in order to feel complete. I mean, like, there's so many things, right? And those can be painful things. And they can be things that we deeply wrestle with. There can be things that we legitimately grieve. He's not knocking any of that. But what he is saying is there are things that can capture our heart in such a way that we think if we don't have that, then somehow we actually don't. I mean, functionally, we're looking for something else to be our savior. And if you think for a moment, perhaps, like, okay, we might expect that John Stott, this revered theologian, to say that. I've always found the words challenging and convicting from the late author and professor David Foster Wallace. Perhaps you're familiar with his work. would have been just a brilliant mind who also struggled with such despair, drug addiction, alcohol abuse. But he found himself deeply impacted by work in, in AA and things like that. He would oftentimes attend church. His father was a very, like... Uh, I would say probably like militant atheist. And we don't, I don't know to this day if David Foster Wallace was somebody that professed faith in Christ, but he was somebody that did spend, eventually spend some time in church after going through rehab and various things. 
And one of the things that he just had such a keen mind to identify was the way that everybody is a worshiper. And things that he wrestled through, sadly, at the age of 46, he took his own life. You have this man that was deeply dialed in and attuned to the realities. And so here his words, they echo so much of what John Stott said, but again, coming from just a different perspective, a different vantage point, but landing at the same thing. If we have eyes to see, I think this is what would be revealed to us. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So if you worship money and things, they are where you tap real meaning in life. Then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. And it's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, he says, about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And so there's this impulse to worship. There's this impulse towards spirituality, but it's so often misguided and misdirected. And God loves us enough to say, I want, I've given you that impulse. You were meant to be in my presence. You were meant to worship me. And so like the Apostle Paul being sent to the Athenians, the reality is here we have the opportunity to still hear from God through his words. In what ways have, do we have misguided worship? And as Paul roams the streets of Athens, all right, and then as he gets an opportunity to actually talk to them, I don't know if you picked up on this as I was reading it earlier, amidst the like probably hundreds of little statues and gods and the idols that were scattered all throughout the city of Athens, they kind of had this safety net of sorts, all right, because they were smart enough to realize, what if we missed one? Right? Imagine just sort of the anxiousness there. Like, okay, we've got this covered, we've got this, we've got this. Okay, we made these sacrifices, we did this. But, but what if there's one we don't know? And so they literally had this one to an unknown God. And so Paul says, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. And then again, another point of connection. Paul's like, hey, what you know as unknown, I want to proclaim to you. And so Paul is tapping into something that the... The idolatry, the ways that we worship anything other than Jesus, when we're trying to find life there, it enslaves us, it traps us, it leads to fear and anxiety. And don't hear me saying, like, just follow Jesus. No more fear, no more anxiety. No, like, those are real battles, right? That's why we long in this Advent season, we long for Jesus to come back so that those things are, are dealt with once and for all. But there is a hope. And Paul is saying, my friends, You've got this altar to an unknown God. I mean, just the amount of, like, honestly, just, just anxiety they must have lived with and the fear to be like, oh, we got to cover our bases. He's like, I've got such good news for you. It's a new book I picked up recently by a professor named Alan Noble called You Are Not Your Own. In the opening pages, he begins to describe a scene that perhaps you have, you've been, maybe you've, been privy to or have seen if you've ever visited a zoo, okay? And so he talks about going to a zoo, and you see some of the beautiful animals that, that are there, and 
hear me on this. I'm not knocking zoos, all right? That's not the point of this, this illustration, okay? Um, some of them there, they need to be rehabilitated, healed, all that stuff. But anyway, his point is, I don't think any of us would ever say that this is the design. Like the ideal environment is for a lion to live in a cage. I think it would be fair to say that, right? That even though there are people that have spent lots and lots of time to make sure the habitat is just uniquely situated and they have all the food and care and all of that, at the end of the day, one of the things that scientists will observe is that the animals will take on almost this psychosis. Like they will literally, so sometimes you will see a lion that just walks this way and walks this way and just paces back and forth minute upon minute, hour upon hour, just keeps doing this. Some that just move up to like the fence or the bars and they just kind of chomp down at it and they're just doing it over and over and over again. And it's come to be termed zoocosis, all right? So if you're like, I've got psychosis, the animals do too, all right? So we're all in this mess together. And this term is this, this language given, like here's one definition that it says this, repetitive invariant behavior pattern with no obvious goal or function. Just back and forth, biting on things, pacing, right? Like there's, there's this sense here that the animal, be it the lion or whatever, wasn't created for that environment. And the reality of the human condition is this, that we were not created to be worshipers of idols. We have been created to worship the one true God and king. And the reality, when you and I give into an environment that says, this is where you find life, this is where you find meaning, this is where you find joy, we are like that animal that is trapped, not in an environment that will allow them to flourish, but rather we just become people that keep pacing back and forth and we just are exhausted from it. You and I have been created to be in the presence of God, and God is on a rescue mission. We talk about this quest, this search for spirituality. Know this, as we celebrate this Advent season and we look back, God has been on a quest to get you back, that he sent his son to rescue you. You talk about going on a quest and it costing you something, it cost Jesus his life. And one day he's gonna return, and he's coming for you, and he's coming for me. He's going to deal with all of the problems and the pain of this world. And the question Paul is putting before these folks is like, will you trust him? So do you recognize the spiritual impulse but also the limitations? And then what Paul does, and you think about that, being like in this cage, like this caged animal, like we need our mind, our perspective, our awareness expanded. Like, there are two sides of the coin. We're going to look at transcendence and imminence. First, we need a transcendent, like this view of the transcendence of God. Recognize his transcendence, his power, his might, his otherness. Yes, you and I are made in his image, but at the same time, man, there are characteristics of our God that things, like, we don't share. Like, I'm not omnipotent and omniscient. Neither are you. We're not omnipresent, but our God is. So look what Paul says in 24 to 25. We need, if we're gonna grow in a right spirituality and moving toward this, recognize the transcendence of God. So Paul says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everything, life and breath and all things. Do you notice what Paul is doing? to the intellectual elite of the day. He's like, hey, can we just, let's just think about this for a moment. You're constructing these images, and they might be very ornate and beautiful. The artistry, right? The gold, silver, wood, like all these, all these various elements. But are we really going to say that like that's the God that made everything? 
right? God does not live in shrines made by hands. He's the creator. He's not contained in the things that we create, the sub-creators. No, he's above and beyond that. He is transcendent. And I love that Paul says he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. I mean, maybe ask yourself this. At the end of the day, do you want a needy, contained God? No. That's not what we want. That's not what we need. We need this transcendent view of this, of this God, this transcendent God who is so different from us. Let me read to you this passage. If you're ever wondering, like, hey, let me just get a glimpse. How does this God talk about himself? The book of Job Near the end, as Job, he suffered tremendously. Do you know the story? And Job is telling his friends, who are terrible counselors, but that's another sermon for another day, all right? He's saying, I just just wanna have a conversation with God. I want an audience with God. Like, Cal wants to let God have it. And God's like, okay, I'll oblige. I'll play, all right? And so God shows up to talk to Job. Job 38, let me just read a few verses. You and I... We need a big view of God. God is not doing this to shame Job. God is doing this to show how powerful, God is doing this to show him how powerful he is, how transcendent he is. Like, I need a bigger view of God. When Paul is talking to the Athenians, he's like, are you kidding me? You're gonna bow down and worship these inanimate objects? Let me show you the God of the universe. He created everything. He doesn't need you. There's no, we looked at this last week, right? He didn't create us for relationships because God was lonely or needed friends. He doesn't need us. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. So if somebody shows up in a whirlwind, it's like, uh-oh, it's on, right? And so he said, who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? This is not off to a good start for Job, right? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. At this point, I'm just like, no, I'm tapping out. I'm done. Like, no. But God continues. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Well, certainly you know. The Bible being sarcastic, which I love. All right. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb and when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come this far but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Try that the next time you're out at the beach. Stand at the edge of the sea as the tide is coming in and you shall not pass, right? Sort of pull a Gandalf. And it's like, no, that's not gonna go well for you, all right? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arms raised and violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And if you're wondering how it continues, it's not, well, then Job said, no, he is silent. And so God continues. We need to recognize the transcendence of our God. But at the same time, Paul 
So that we need to recognize the image, how close he is, that God has moved toward us. Advent is the celebration, not only of that he's coming back, but that God, 2,000 years ago, took on flesh and blood and he moved into the neighborhood. Look with me at verses 26 to 28. Paul says this, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. Paul's addressing a group of philosophers that believe that, that God was distant and he sort of like wound up the clock of the universe and just like set it off to, to go. He said, no, no, he's determined the boundary markers, the time and the place that you live. So you have been appointed by God to live in 2021. You've been appointed by God to live in the neighborhood you live in. You've been appointed by God to have the friends and the family and work the job or go to the school that you do. You were appointed by God before time began as the elite group of people that got to live through a global pandemic, right? I mean, seriously. I know it's crazy and it's like, oh, it's been terrible in many regards, but some, for some reason, God said, no, you're here during this time. Talk about the closeness of God. He's determined it all. He is intimately involved in your life. There is nothing you brought in here this morning that he is not dialed into and aware of and deeply involved in. Paul continues, and he says this. So he's determined this, and he did this, and then he's going to tell us why. Well, he did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him. But then he says this, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. He begins to quote, he's familiar with their culture, and even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Ever since Genesis 3, the storyline of humanity has been us trying to appease the gods or God, trying to merit our way, trying to earn our way. This is in like overdrive in the place where we live. In this time, in this place, in this country, right? Like there's good, good, it's good to have a good work ethic, but at the same time, there can be something that creeps in that like I've got to earn. I've got to achieve, I've got to do this. And so yes, there's this call like, yeah, we're on the spiritual quest and we're seeking and know this, the more true thing, the thing we need to rest in is that God has been in pursuit of you. That God did move into the neighborhood that Jesus left the heavenly realm and he emptied himself and he came, born to the Virgin Mary, born in a barn, put in a manger, dealt with life on the run as Herod was trying to kill him, lives as a refugee as he flees to Egypt, eventually gets to come home and lives in a place that people would say, does anything good come from Nazareth? That's where Jesus grows up. Not anything you're super proud to put on your resume. People are like, oh, hey, where'd you grow up? Nazareth. And like, like, you don't want to share that. This is the God that pursues us, that would do that, that would live a sinless life, that would die in your place and my place, that would conquer Satan, sin, and death like he promised that he would, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where he set in motion, there was this plan set in motion that God is the one who's seeking after us, that he's pursuing us, that Jesus is the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one. You want true spirituality? This quest, realize the quest that our God has been on to come after you and to pursue you. Last week, I quoted from a book called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. I want to read you one other section. He is a man who grew up nominally Jewish, very bright, well-educated man. And over the years, he began to just see the emptiness of his life, the things that he gave time and energy, what we would say, and what this passage has been talking about, like the idolatry of his life. 
And he begins to reflect on the second mountain, the second half of his, his life, and the things that really do matter. What's his legacy going to be? And by God's grace, he would say sometime probably in the, the last five to 10 years, it sounds like, that he's come to saving faith in Christ, that Jesus, like this hound of heaven, has been after him, pursuing him. Years ago, he even got a chance to sit down. I quoted John Stott earlier. He had this lunch with John Stott where he thought he was gonna pepper John Stott with all these questions as Brooks is sort of this journalism, you know, he's a journalist. And Stott just turned the tables and began to just ask him, where do you stand with the Lord? What are your questions? What are you? And it just unsettled him. He never forgot those conversations. And over the years, God kept bringing people into his life. And he reflects and he's saying, hey, there are things that I was intentional on. And yes, I read these books and I asked these questions and I went to these church services. But towards the end of his section on spirituality and philosophy, he says this. Throughout the book, I've been talking about commitment as a series of promises we make to the world. But consider the possibility that a creature of infinite love has made a promise to us. Consider the possibility that we are the ones committed to the objects of an infinite commitment. And that commitment is to redeem us and to bring us home. That is why religion is hope. I am a wandering Jew and a very confused Christian. But how quick is my pace? How open are my possibilities? And how vast are my hopes? God who is on a rescue mission to get us home, not leaving us like a caged animal. But he's like, I've created you to be in my presence. And true spirituality recognizes, yes, that God is transcendent, that we've been created to worship, but that God comes close. This Advent season is a time to reflect on these longings, these desires, and to celebrate that God has come close. And God one day is going to be so close that you will be near him in his presence and he will wipe away every tear. This is not a God that is distant and removed. This is a God who comes close, a God who literally gave up his life for you. So we'll close with, with this as we think about this. this. is why Paul would write Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the son born of a woman. God didn't send an angel. God didn't send another servant. God didn't just send a messenger. He sent his son born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, brought into the family, given an inheritance. And so as Paul closes this out, as we think about this quest, what does it mean to have this quest towards like a true spirituality, to have joy, a deep satisfaction, a new identity, Paul roots it and grounds it all. In verses 29 to 31, he says, you gotta recognize the resurrection and repent of your idolatry. Recognize what Christ has done, and to repent means to turn in a new direction. So let's close with this. 29, since we are God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. He's like, think logically for a moment, friends. He's like, we're God's offspring. Some of you would even say that. And you're saying, we as living human beings came from inanimate objects. That doesn't make any sense but an image fashioned by human art and imagination. He says, therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, to move in a new direction, to move away from a worship of self, a worship of all these other things, and to worship the one true God. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus one day is going to split the sky. He is going to come back. And the day that he comes to judge means he's coming to set everything right. 
And if you have the righteousness of Christ that's been bestowed upon you through no merit of your own, but it's been given to you through the finished work of Jesus and your trust in him, you get to be in God's presence. But there is a day of judgment as well. If you have not trusted in Christ, the judgment comes and you are away from the presence of God, which is hell. And Paul is writing this to these folks in Athens, the way we're here. We want to know what true spirituality is. It's not just find your own way. It's not like whatever your truth is. No, no. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and anybody can get in on this. And he says, okay, well, how so? He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's what we need to wrestle with. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. This is the stupidest thing in the world that we're doing right now. But because the resurrection is true, he's forming us into a people. He's inviting us to enjoy his presence, not just someday in the future, though that's gonna be amazing, but like right here, right now. So hear these last words out of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about the resurrection. This is the chapter, in many ways, in the scriptures. I'll read a few verses from it. And notice what Paul is contrasting. The first Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. The man kind of of this world and then the spiritual. It doesn't mean a disembodied soul. Jesus didn't come back as a disembodied soul, right? He's flesh and blood. He's walking around. He's eating a meal. He's eating fish, right? Like he's, he's real. Gives us a glimpse into what is the new reality, to be spiritual doesn't mean disembodied soul. To be spiritual, like the, the, the prototype that we're seeing is Jesus. This is where our story is headed. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was raised from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Your ultimate spiritual life, like this is what awaits us. This is the promise. This is the promise that began in Genesis 3, culminating in the first advent, and we await the second advent. So let me pray for us, ask you to take some time. I'll give us some instruction how to continue, how we continue in our service, but ask the Holy Spirit to lead you in repentance, to remember the beauty of the gospel, and we're gonna rejoice together through song, through communion, but let me pray for us right now. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that in the fullness of time to come, you sent forth your son, so that we might actually be restored to your presence to worship what is right and true. Thank you that you've created us as worshipers, God. We repent of the things that we have given our time and energy and our affections to, the things that we've put in the space where only you belong. So Holy Spirit, we thank you that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. There's no more shame. But we do know in love you lead us in repentance. You bring conviction. And so please do that work now. And then please apply the comfort of the gospel that God has been pursuing us. And may we rejoice in that. 
not only individually, but collectively. And God, may you get your glory, and may we experience just a deep and abiding joy as we worship you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.